Well, good morning. I'm going to start off with a story. I didn't make the story up. I heard it. There was a family. They were in their kitchen. They were looking out the kitchen window into the front yard. And when they looked out in the front yard, they saw their dog. And the dog was making a lot of noise, going back and forth. And they heard all this noise. And so they, you know, they looked out there and it looked like the dog had another animal in its mouth. And so they went out into the, into the front yard and they hit the dog or shook the dog or whatever, but got it to open its mouth and out plopped a rabbit, out plopped a very dead rabbit, out plopped the next door neighbor's pet rabbit. So they panicked. They did not want to get blamed for this. So they picked up the rabbit and they went back inside their house and went to the kitchen sink and turned the water on and they washed all of the dirt and the dog spit and you know, mud and everything off of the rabbit and then flipped it over onto the other side and washed that side until it, clean, you know, it was all clean and white fur. And then they took this damp, wet rabbit corpse and they took a um, blow dryer and... <laughs> And they fluffed the rabbit back up and then they went and the, the neighbors were not home yet. And so they snuck over to the next door neighbor's front yard and they opened the rabbit cage and they put the rabbit back in the cage and they closed the door and they went back over to their house because they did not want to be blamed for this. There was already trouble with relations with the neighbors anyway. And a couple hours later, the neighbors came home and they heard screaming and crying from the little boy whose pet rabbit it was. They, and so they walk out into the front yard acting like they don't know anything. Oh, what, ha- what happened, little buddy? And he said, my rabbit, my rabbit. And they said, you know, oh, hmm, what happened to your rabbit? And he said, my rabbit, my rabbit. Last week he died and we buried him. <laughs> and now he's back. <laughs> Some of you are just getting it now. Um, so... Um, Why would I start off with that story? (laughs) We are beginning a new series um, called Joseph's Story. It's based on uh, the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, and it's based on the curriculum that we taught at Teen Reach Adventure Camp this past summer. Um, We call it TRAC, so Teen Reach Adventure Camp, you abbreviate it T-R-A-C, TRAC. Um, Our church, if you don't know this, sponsors three camps for kids that are in foster care. There's one for elementary kids called Royal Family Kids Camp, and then there are two for middle school and high school kids, one for boys and one for girls, called Boys Track and Girls Track. We do them every single summer. It's our church's way of ministering to a particular group of people who've had a rough time here in Marion County. So we minister to kids in foster care every single summer at these camps. This past July, I think it was, um, I was the speaker at Boys Track, and I thought it would be good if I taught you what I taught them this past summer. And here are some reasons why. First of all, this series, Joseph's Story, this week, next week, and the week after, will be different than a lot of what I do here at Good News Church. The track curriculum forced me to summarize about a dozen chapters of the Bible into three short messages. And that is not my typical style. For those of you who come here regularly, you know, like, yeah, let's try to cover four chapters in 25 minutes. That's not, I don't ever even try to do that. That seems crazy. And yet, that's what the curriculum called for, and that's what we did. And I'm happy with how it turned out. And so I would like to share it with you. Uh, Second thing is the focus of the series this past um, summer was about how God uses bad circumstances for good. And I realized that is a lesson that everyone needs to hear. That is not something that is uniquely for kids in foster care, right? Every single adult in this room needs to know how God uses bad circumstances for good. Thirdly, there are some of you who have attended church here for quite some time, um, but you don't know the kinds of things we teach at camp because you've never been, okay? In fact, some of you may not realize 
that we even teach anything at camp, okay? Because I know this because each summer we do like a report of like what happened while I was at camp and there's a video and the video always shows like people on tubes and behind a boat and someone's throwing a football and someone's bouncing this way and that way and you probably just think that's all that happens. They don't really show a lot of like someone teaching the Bible. In fact, whenever I'm the speaker, I sit there and I watch the video wondering like, oh, am I gonna be in the video this year? And I'm like, oh, is it gonna be good? And then, and then I'm there and I'm like, yeah, oh, it's gone. Like literally they... <laughs> Five-minute video, there's a half a second, usually, of the person who's teaching the Bible. So if you missed, the, if you blinked for half a second, you might think they don't ever teach the Bible at, the, at camp, but we do. And so for those of you who've never like, been or don't know what it's like, I thought it might, might be nice. For those of you who've heard of our, the camps that we do year after year, for those of you who have supported the camp but been unable to go, for those of you who have prayed for people at camp, maybe people in your family went and you prayed for them while they were at camp, but you've never gotten a chance to hear the kinds of things we teach there, um, this is your opportunity to know. So at camp this past summer, I began with the dog digging up the rabbit story. And I began with that, first of all, because it's an attention grabber. I knew that if I started with that story, there would be kids that would be interested in whatever I had to say next. The second reason I began with that story is because I believe it teaches an important point. <laughs> Cleaning up the outside of a thing is meaningless if that thing is dead on the inside. Amen? That's true about rabbits, obviously. And that's true about the things of God. Cleaning up something on the outside is meaningless if it is dead on the inside. And so we started off camp this year. We wanted to make it clear to the kids that the goal of the camp is not to get them to change some of their outward behaviors so that they appear to be more Christian. Not the goal of camp. And if you are to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you know this, it must happen from the inside out. That is the only way it works. There is a dead thing in us that needs to come alive. And so while I was teaching the kids that this past summer, I thought, I think to myself now, I might as well teach you guys the very same thing. There are probably some of you who've been coming here maybe the past few months. Maybe you've had some difficult thing in your life and you've decided you're gonna get religion or you're gonna take Christianity seriously or you're gonna go with your friend to church because they said it was helpful to them. And maybe you've shown up here hoping that we will give you some tips on how to behave better. I just want you to know, that's not really what we do here. Our goal is for people to be made spiritually alive because Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. Then after that, there can be tips on how best to live this life. <clears throat> but faith in Jesus and spiritual resurrection on the inside has to happen first. Amen? So we began with that. Then we introduced our verse for the week. So every year at camp, when we get there, there's like a verse that's like, this is the camp verse for the week. We encourage the kids to memorize it. This was this year's verse. It's Romans 8, 28. It says this, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, that was the camp verse. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. We encourage them to memorize this. I think we gave them a bead if they did memorize it. It was the camp verse for the summer. We have one every single summer. This was this one. Okay, not only did we encourage them to memorize this verse, we also taught them how to look up a Bible verse using this verse. In other words, we explained to them right at the beginning that whenever you're trying to find a Bible verse, they, the, the references look like this. And what happens is the, the, the Bible is split up into a whole bunch of different parts called books, and the different books have different names, like Genesis and Romans. After that, there's a number. That number, if you're gonna look up something in Romans, you, what you do is you go back, you go to the 
table of contents, find Romans, okay? Figure out where Romans is. Once you get to the beginning of Romans, you're not there yet. Then you start flipping to the eight. And we point out there's two sets of numbers in the Bible, okay? At first, ignore all the little numbers and just look at the big ones and go find the big Romans one and find the big two and find the big three. Keep flipping, keep flipping until you get to the big eight. After you get to the big eight, then you start paying attention to the small numbers and you go down to the small number that's in front of each sentence until you get to the 28th one after the big eight and you will find this verse there. It's a very helpful system for us to be able to locate Bible verses and so we taught it to the kids. Um, I don't often teach that here on Sunday morning. Like how do you find a Bible verse? What does it mean? Romans 8, 28 and how do you find it? And the reason I don't teach that very often is because I assume that when you walk in here, that I would I assume the majority of people who walk in here on a Sunday morning already know that system. They would know how to find Romans 8, 28 in their Bible. Um, so we teach that to the campers, but I realize, even thinking about it this past few couple weeks, if you are here this morning and you didn't grow up in church, you don't necessarily know that system. I can imagine if you didn't grow up in church, you show up and somebody says something that's a word you've never heard followed by a series of numbers, right? It sounds like a license plate or some sort of weird UPC, whatever. Like Christians use this code, right? Well, go to Genesis 4, 15. And you know, what, what even is that? What do you do with that? And if you're someone who didn't grow up in church and you go, yeah, that just all sounds like weird code language to me. This is what's important for you to understand. You're not dumb. It's that the Bible isn't formatted like other books. And so there's a system for it. Okay. I, there is no, I've read a lot of books. Okay. It might not look like it, but I've read a lot of books. Okay. <laughs> and I've never seen one that breaks things down into four columns like this with numbers in the middle and then large numbers every few paragraphs and little tiny numbers in front of every sentence. It's not like any other book. Okay, so if you didn't grow up with it, you don't know. But if you did, but, but it's, there comes a point where you do need to know that, well, the, the word is the book, the first number is the big numbers, and then the second number is the small number. And the thing that's helpful about that system is it's a way that Christians, for a long time now, have been able to all locate the exact same sentence at the exact same time in their Bibles. It's a great system, but if you don't know it, you don't know it, and you need to know it. And so I say this, I realize now, not just at camp, every once in a while, I need to explain that even here on a Sunday morning that this is the way our Bible works and this is how we're able to find these things. And so I taught that to the kids and I now teach it to you. After we did that, we moved on to the story of Joseph. Okay, it's found in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and that's what we're gonna do now. If you have a Bible with you or even on your phone, you can turn to Genesis 37, okay? Genesis being the book, the 37 being the big number. And then we're gonna start with the first, with verse one. I wanna give you a little reminder before I start reading it. Um, this is a summary of the story of Joseph this week, next week, and the week after. We are going to fly over the story of Joseph at 30,000 feet. We are not going to get into every single detail, okay? Maybe sometime in the future, I will go back and teach this story more in depth, but this is going to be an overview. Um, I also wanted to credit the track curriculum. Some of the sentences that I say today or next week or the week after may be from that curriculum. When I got it, I looked at what they wanted to teach and then I tried to put it into my own words. Um, and I don't know how much of their words made it into my words or not. And so I didn't go back recently and look back at their curriculum, but I'm just letting you know what I'm teaching you is based on Genesis chapters 37 through 50, but it's also based on the track curriculum and the way they said to present it. It's adapted from that. So with all that said, let's go to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37 starts with these words, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. So Jacob here is Joseph's father. So the story begins with his dad. Um, Jacob's dad's name, uh, Joseph's dad's name is Jacob. And he, later on in the story, he's also referred to as Israel. Those are two names for the same guy. Israel and Jacob are, are the one guy and they are Joseph's dad. These are the family records 
of Jacob. At 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. The young man was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age. I relate to this. I was born to my father in my father's old age, and I would like to think that I was the favorite of his kids as well. I don't know for sure, but I I pretend pretty hard. Um, So... So Joseph was a son born to him in his old age, and he made a robe of many colors for him. Now, this is like maybe the most famous part of the story. It's the reason why there was a Broadway show called Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. It's whenever you see like pictures or paintings or cartoons with Joseph, he always has this like multicolored robe on. They make a really big deal of it. I don't think it's that big of a deal in the story itself, to be honest. Um, especially the fact that it's multicolored is not really the important thing. The, the thing that this robe has to do with the story is it was a gift that his father gave to him that he did not give to all of his siblings. And that's what caused them to be jealous. Maybe, maybe that's what added on to their jealousy. There may have been jealousy even before that. Um, but we'll keep reading. So in his old age, he gives, he gives Joseph a robe made of many colors, does not give it to his other brothers, okay? When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, I'm sure they saw it in the father's behavior and they probably noticed it in the gift, right? When they saw that their father loved him more than all his, all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. So in these first four, four verses, we see that Joseph has this father, um, Jacob Israel, He has multiple older brothers. In the verses I read, it does not say how many, but I believe it was 10. And then he ends up having an 11th brother later on that's a younger one, but he has 10 older brothers. He was his father's favorite, and this was a dysfunctional family. Can we agree it was a dysfunctional family, right? There's multiple wives, so he's got multiple half-brothers in this family. He, there's this jealousy where they hate him, like siblings that, that hate each other. And so we have Joseph was born into a dysfunctional family. Um, And actually, every family has problems. Do you realize this? Like there is a sense in which every family is dysfunctional because every family has sin within it. Did you know this? I know sometimes we talk about dysfunctional families and not, and I realize that, but what we really mean is just really dysfunctional families and sort of dysfunctional families. But there isn't any families, there are no families with no dysfunction, right? There is sin in every single family. If you think about what a family is, It's a group of sinners that live together, okay? And they sin against each other, which is going to cause dysfunction. So that is true. Every single family in that sense is dysfunctional. Now, that doesn't mean we're all the same exact amount, right? Some are worse, some are others. Some some families are worse to be in than other families are. Some families are better to be in. Some families have more sin in them and therefore more dysfunction. Some of them have less and therefore less dysfunction. But the thing we all have in common is there are no perfect families. Um, I think the kids at camp need to know this, And I think you need to know this too. You may look at your own family and be happy with it or jealous of some other family. You may look at other families and go, wow, it seems that they're perfect. I'll just let you know that is not true, whatever family you're looking at. There is no family that is untouched by sin. And there is no family that Jesus can't redeem. There is no family that is so sinful, Jesus cannot redeem them. And so Joseph is born into a difficult situation. The next part of the story involves Joseph having two dreams. Uh, One night he goes to sleep and he has a dream that he and his brothers 
are gathering grain and each of them has a bundle of grain, I guess, at the end of the work day. And so there's 10 bundles of grain that, that belong to his brothers and then there's his bundle of grain. And then at the end of the day, Joseph's bundle of grain stands up straight and all of his brother's bundles of grain bow down to him, okay? So Joseph gets up the next morning and tells his brother the story, his brothers the story, right? Now, this is, brothers, this is the brother, they already hate him. And then he says, hey, guess what I, guess what I dreamed about last night? Well, how, and so he tells them the whole story. And so, of course, they just get more frustrated with him. You know, what? We hate this guy. And how arrogant is he? Even at night, he's dreaming about how he's better than us and he outranks us or he's gonna outrank us or whatever they do as they thought, but they were frustrated. And then it looks like on a different night, he went back to sleep and had another dream. And that dream was that the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were all bowing down to him. And so he gets up the next morning and he tells that one to the family too. And I think his, his dad was there around for that one. And they were particularly like, frustrated and disturbed by the story. I assume that it was interpreted in such a way that the sun and the moon were the mom and the dad and the 11 stars were the brothers bowing down to him. And this idea that he's dreaming about outranking them, it was, just, it was a disturbing thing um, to them. And so he, but anyway, he tells these dreams and, and that's, that's what happens early on in the story. Now, here's a spoiler. If you keep reading the story, like it doesn't say it at this point, but later on the story, we will get to this point, we will find out that these dreams that Joseph had were actually God revealing to Joseph some of his future ahead of time, okay? That there will come a day when his family really does bow down to him and he really does outrank them, that he was, he was seeing a glimpse into his future. I don't know if he understood that or not at the time that it was happening. There are... There are some, there's a part of the story we'll get to later where I think you'll see, it, it does seem like maybe they considered that this could be something that's prophetic, that this would come true. I don't know if he understood that or not. And even if he did understand that he was seeing something that, he was seeing something about his future, I'm sure, I mean, I'm quite sure he had no clue how that would come to pass. So the next thing that happens in the story is Joseph's dad sends him to check on his brothers. If you remember earlier in the story, there's already a place where he had given a bad report about his brothers. He had checked on his brothers before and then told on them, which probably just fed into the problems in their relationship anyway. And the dad does it again. Hey, the the, 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 your brothers are all tending sheep. Go check on them. See how they're doing. So Joseph goes to check on them. We will pick up the story in verse 18. They saw him in the distance. So the they is the brothers, his older brothers, and the him is Joseph. They saw him in the distance, and before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. So they're there with the sheep. They look off, I guess, in the open fields, so they could probably see him for quite a number of yards away. And there they see, hey, there's a little brother, Joseph. And then they notice, hey, it's going to be just us and him out here and sheep. And that's it. What should we do? And so as he's walking toward them, they plot to kill him. I don't know if he's a slow walker or if they're fast plotters. But in the time that he's walking toward them, they have a discussion, right? They, they said to one another, here comes that dreamer. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. So as they see him walking up, apparently it's pretty quick. They say like, hey, I got an idea. And, and the other brother's probably going, yeah, I bet you it's the same idea I have. And so he comes up and they say, we're, we're gonna kill him. We're gonna throw him to one of these pits. And the idea here, and this is the part actually that makes me think maybe they thought these dreams had something to do with future reality because they say, then we'll see what comes of his dreams. I think they thought if we kill him, we will guarantee that his dreams do not come true. So that was their plan. They end up not going through with it. Something happens else instead. But um, at first they do throw him into a pit and it seems that the plan was for him to die in that pit. But then this happens, verse 26. 
Then Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And they agreed. When Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took Joseph to Egypt. So they said to themselves, at least one of them came up with the idea, why in the world would we kill him? I mean, he is our brother, after all. Why would we kill him when we could sell him as a slave? We'll still be rid of him. We'll make some money out of it, and we won't be the ones that killed him. So that's what they do. They sell him as a slave. They took that coat off of him. He didn't get to take that with him into slavery. And then he's taken down to Egypt to be a slave. Joseph now, at this point in the story, is in a terrible situation because his brothers betrayed him. Have you ever felt betrayed? Have you ever had someone in your life that you, were, that you thought was supposed to love you or was supposed to look out for you and they betrayed you? Like, can you picture a little bit of what he's going through here? Not necessarily being sold as a slave into Egypt. That obviously doesn't apply, I don't think, to anybody in this room. But someone who's a family member, someone who's a close loved one who's supposed to be looking out for you and then just betrays you. So now the brothers have to cover up what they did. So they took his robe, the multicolored robe that they were jealous of, and they put animal blood on it. And they went home with it to try to trick their father into thinking that a wild animal had gotten Joseph. Okay, so they, they, I think the idea, I'm assuming, it doesn't say they did this, but I'm assuming like they ripped the, the robe up and, you know, spattered blood all around in such a way that when they came home, they were able to say, hey, dad, we can't tell for sure. It's bloody and it's ripped up and stuff, but this kind of looks like the robe that you gave Joseph, is it? Could it be? Because if this is it, I, we think maybe he got by a wild animal. That was what they attempted to do. In fact, they didn't attempt to do it. They were successful at it. Joseph's father, Jacob, mourned. He believed that his son was eaten by a wild animal. And so the, the, this, this chapter ends with him being so upset. So they tricked their dad into thinking a wild animal got him. And that is where we will stop the story for today. Jacob is sad. He's thinking that his son is dead. The brothers have just done an evil thing, and now they are trying to keep it a secret amongst themselves. And Joseph is now a slave, mistreated because of the way his brothers betrayed him. And so what I want to do now is let's go back to the verse that we began with. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. The fact that it says all things makes me think that this must refer to good things and bad things, because that would include all things, right? We know that all things, good and bad, work together for the good. Notice not the good and the bad. So it's all the things, good things and bad things, work together for the good of those who love God those who are called according to his purpose. If Joseph loves and trusts in God, good can come out of the situation that he's in. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And that's also true in your life. There are some of you in this room, you're going through a difficult time right now. And you can read a story like this and go, oh, you know, God can do great things in Joseph's life. That principle is not unique to Joseph. That can be true in your life as well. It may be that bad choices have been made in your life. In fact, it's certainly true that bad choices have been made in your life. 
Some of those are choices that you have made. You have done sinful things in your life that have brought negative things into your life, okay? There are also choices that other people have made that have brought negative things into your life, okay? There are sins that other people committed. There weren't your sins. You're not responsible for them. Other people did bad things that brought negative things into your life. So you have bad circumstances in your life from bad choices. Some of them stem from decisions you have made. Some of them um, come from decisions that other people have made that are in your life because you're connected to other people. You're a sinner and everybody you've ever looked at is a sinner, right? And so some of them have sinned against you and caused these problems. And then you, of course, have also done that. In fact, you've even done that to other people. That is something that is common to everyone, that we have difficulty in our life from decisions we made and we have difficulty in our life from decisions we did not make. And that varies from person to person to different degrees. Like we all have that in common. That's true of all of us, but it's not true to the same degree. Meaning some of us have sinned more than others. Some of us have sinned worse than others and have brought more negative consequences into our life than others. We also, another thing that's true is we are not all sinned against by other people in the same amounts. Some people in this room have been sinned against more than other people in this room. But here's the important part. God can use bad choices for good. God can use bad circumstances for good. Ones that you caused, ones that were not your responsibility. Either way, God can use bad circumstances for your good. We're going to see that in Joseph's story, Lord willing, if he allows me to finish this series over these next couple of weeks. But I want you to see it's not just true in Joseph's story. That can be true even in your life. So I will end with a story from my life as an example, a time where God took bad and made it into good. My father died when I was nine years old. When he died, I understood at the time that it was a bad thing that had happened. I understood at nine years old, you're old enough to realize death is bad, you don't wanna lose your father. And I could see mom crying and my brother's crying, everybody crying, so I knew it was a bad thing. And I knew that it was an unusual bad thing because at the time, I was in fourth grade, I went to school, and nobody else's parents had died. Like as a fourth grader, there was not a kid in my class who had a parent die that year, just me. And then I went to fifth grade, and nobody's, I mean, that's a young age. When when I was with all the 10-year-olds, nobody's parents died, only mine, only my dad had died. When I got into sixth grade, finally, Karen Jones' father died, and that's not a real name. But this other girl in my class, her father died in sixth grade, and that was the first time I had someone else in my class who had lost a parent at such a young age. So I knew it was unusual. Like I knew it was a bad thing that happened and I knew it was unusually bad. My father was a businessman. He was an immigrant from Italy and he had an entrepreneurial type of spirit. He started a successful crane company in Fort Lauderdale, Florida and um, it went really well. And so his first family uh, that he had, I was born to him in his old age from a different woman than the first woman that he was married to. But the kids from his first marriage, my half brothers and sisters, um, they all went into the family business. Like dad was there for their whole, you know, their whole childhood and into adulthood. They all worked in the family business and they all became business people. Both my brothers and my sister, they were all business people. Um, That didn't happen with me. My dad died while I was just nine. And so I, I did not become a businessman like my father. I did not become a businessman like all of my siblings. Okay, and I think that's because my father died when I was nine. I think that he would have taught me things. I think that he would have, like his values and that which, that which he learned and the way he lived his life, I think that would have been passed on to me. But he died when I was in fourth grade. 
And so I did not become a businessman like everybody else in my family. And I think I, I, think, I think I could have, I think I would have, I think I have the brain for it. But that didn't happen. So what happened is I looked for, and, and I assume for those of you that have grown up in single families, uh, like a single parent family, you can relate to this. Whatever parent you lost, you, I think most of us did this, I did this. You look for someone else of that same gender to look at as like a role model in the place of the one you lost. And so for me, it was my youth pastor. Okay? I didn't have a father, but my youth pastor, his name was Mike Gordon, and he was the one that I paid attention to and thought, okay, well, I'm going to grow up to be like him. Okay? And you can have a role model, and you don't even have to ask them permission. Like, you can just pay attention to their life. Like, you don't have to say, well, like, will you mentor me? Like, I never did that. I just paid attention to the decisions he made and the stuff he said and thought, okay, I'm going to make decisions like that. If that's what he would do, if I'm ever in that situation, that's what I'll do. If that's how he talks, that's how I'll talk. And so um, I, I, he was a role model for me all the way to the point that I became a youth pastor like him. He was a youth pastor for many years and then became, like he started his own church, okay? And he became a senior pastor. And I was a youth pastor for many years and then started my own church, okay? You're at it. Um, so I, I followed in his footsteps exactly. And this church now um, is the sponsor church of the camp that I was referring to earlier for kids in foster care. And so I told the kids at camp, this camp that you're at wouldn't exist in this way with these people if my dad hadn't died. How crazy is that to think about it? Like there's that, this camp going, I'm so glad I'm here. Yeah, it's happening because my dad died. In other words, there would have been no camp if there wasn't a sponsoring church. There wouldn't have been a sponsoring church if that church hadn't started. The church hadn't, wouldn't have started if I wasn't a pastor. I wouldn't have been a pastor if I wasn't a youth pastor. I wouldn't have been a youth pastor if I hadn't followed after the, the example of my youth pastor. And I don't think I would have followed after the example of my youth pastor if my dad had lived longer. Isn't that crazy? I think there's ministry happening right now, like including this sermon that probably would not exist if my dad hadn't died. And that's just one little example. I'm sure that there are many, many, many other examples of this truth found in the lives of the people in this room right now. So maybe over lunch, you should share some of these stories with each other. Maybe at community group this week, you should share some of these stories with each other. When were the occasions where you can look backwards in your life and see that God brought good out of bad? That's where we're gonna end our story for today. If God's wills, we will get to the next part next Sunday. Let's pray. God, thank you for these people and that they are listening. Thank you so much that you have given this story to us and the ability for us to learn from it. Thank you for Romans 8.28. Thank you for Genesis 37. I know that there are people in this room, this was a difficult week. For some of them, this was a difficult month. For some of them, this has been a difficult year. There may be some of them who even have allowed that to push them away from you rather than toward you. But I thank you that you work all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And so I, I just pray, I, I believe that there are people in this room right now who needed to hear this message. And so I just pray that you would use your word and by the power of your spirit that you would apply it to us. I pray that you would use this in the lives of people in this room. People who needed to be comforted and encouraged. I pray that they would walk out of here comforted and encouraged by your goodness and your sovereignty. 
We love you and we thank you for everything. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.